We did a podcast a few years back titled Backsman, the search for Milwaukee's first hip-hop song. And in this six-part series, hosts Tyrone Miller and Justin Barney find that answer eventually. It also so happens that this year is hip-hop's 50th anniversary. So to honor Milwaukee and the anniversary, we decided for the month of September that we will be recapping Backspin, the search for Milwaukee's first hip-hop song. Are you ready? Backspin, the search for Milwaukee's first hip-hop song with 88.9 DJ Tyrone Miller and music director Justin Barney. On this episode of Backspin... Now, on the tip of who was the literal first, like, truly, like, in the hip-hop culture, brothers that did it, it was definitely my group, Attack. It was literally like... A revolution in my mind it blew my mind to see somebody grabbing a turntable and scratching with the needle you know i'd never had seen anything like it. this is backspin you know we was entertaining our generation like we was we was making a mark and entertaining our generation like people really was proud of what milwaukee was doing every single person that we've talked to from every single person, the MCs, the DJs, producers, every single person mentioned speech. Is that is that correct? Literally every single one. And and it was not just okay. I rapped with him. It was people. I they he produced a song for him. He influenced them by just being such a great guy in the community. Or they knew him. They worked with him. They met with him. They just knew where he lived. He was just around. And everyone had such reverence. Right for speech. Right, it was just amazing to hear about this one person who everybody has some type of connection with. And part of the reason why everyone is connecting with him is because speech is the one that made it. He made it, you know? he definitely made it. <laughs> he definitely made it. So um, before he was speech, he was peachy in Milwaukee, but then he started the group Arrested Development. He formed Arrested Development in Atlanta. You know Arrested Development. Yes, you do. Mr. Wendell. Tennessee. Tennessee. These are songs that we know and love now. In 1992, they released the album Three Years, Five Months, and Two Days in the Life of Arrested Development. And that album went on to be like the Village Voice album of the year in 1992. They won two Grammys on that album in 1993 for Best New Artist and Best Rap Performance by a Duo or a Group. They were named Band of the Year in (laughs) Rolling Stone magazine. Arrested Development was on top of the world in the early 90s, and they have gone on to influence uh, hip-hop as an entire entity since then. And it all started with speech in Milwaukee. When I would throw a party, people from North Division, um, you know, Rufus King, Riverside, Tech, I mean, all various places would all come to the parties and we all sort of knew each other. It was it was definitely a big community. So that was the voice of speech. The man everybody has been talking about for this this entire podcast. We wanted to talk to him because since everybody mentioned him as the first, we that's what we're looking for, right? Cheers we're trying to find the first. <laughs> <laughs> we're trying to find Milwaukee's first hip hop song, so we had to talk to him. 
do you feel let me just get to it do you feel attack on the wax or you you know attack was the first hip-hop song milwaukee's first hip-hop song you know i know it wasn't the first um there was a a group and i don't know their names right now but they did some type of sports or wrestling record and it had it had rap in it and they weren't a rap crew out of milwaukee you know you know back in those um late 70s early 80s there was r&b groups that were taking their shot at rapping and so like in new york fatback did it um you know in milwaukee there was a r&b group that was just sort of rapping on a song but they weren't a rap group um i, I don't even really think they had a a real knowledge of hip-hop per se but they knew that it was a a trendy thing and they thought it was cool and so they did it and so it's something like wrestling rap or something like that and that was the first song that i ever remember now on the tip of who was the literal first like truly like in the hip-hop culture brothers that did it it was definitely my group um attack time out time out hold on speech <laughs> time out we need to discuss this right now so justin we have a man that everybody said made the first rap song of Milwaukee. And we talked to them, and he said he did it, unlike the Majestics who said, don't call us rappers. How do you feel about this right now? I like that he I like that he claims it. <laughs> yeah, I like sure. I like that right, right, right. you know the, the Majestics were like, Yeah, we technically did it. And he is saying like it there was we didn't do he didn't do it accidentally. He did it on purpose. He's claiming it. This is the moment. Attack. He says it's first. So I'm going to hear him out. Let's okay, hear Let's, yeah, hear, let's, let's hear what else he has to say. Okay, cool. Just check it. And Attack was me, a brother named T.A. Wiz, rest in peace, and a brother named uh, Special K, who is now named DJ Kimmett. And um, we were definitely the first, like, official hip-hop crew to release a record um, of hip-hop in Milwaukee, and that was the song called um, Attack on the Wax. And... I definitely remember, um, you know, me doing another version called Attack on the Wax 2. Because I agree with you, the first version was our first time ever doing a rap record. And we felt it was cool, but we felt, at least me, I felt we could do better. So... We went back in the studio and did a better version of that song and included three other songs um, on that album or EP, I should say. And it was uh, Tip the Bottle Up, a song called That's Right, a song called My Car, and then, of course, Attack on the Wax, too. So, yeah, that was the first hip-hop record that I remember, though, from a hip-hop crew. And it was interesting because I listened to those four songs. I found them on YouTube, and... The last song on there, I, it was, you know, because I'm a DJ as well. So I was like, who's doing the scratches on these songs? And Doc B was like, yo, that was that was speech. Like, that was Todd Thomas doing them. So you also had a DJ crew right before this? Yeah. I had a crew called Knights of the, Town, uh, Knights of the Turntables. And basically, you know, I started off as a DJ at age 13. I was DJing solely. I wasn't even rhyming. I was DJing. My dad owned one of the most popular nightclubs in Milwaukee called, well, first it was called Rich Man, Poor Man. Then it turned into the Fox Trap. And this was all in the late 70s, um, early 80s. And it was literally one of the most popular nightclubs in Milwaukee. So 
um, I used to DJ there at 13. And so I was, I remember like the first DJs that were scratching and mixing that I ever heard of in Milwaukee was myself, Dr. B and Jerry Smokin' B was also um, putting his hand towards it. And um, there was another brother named Bruce Hegwood, I believe, or Hedgewood, um, who also was not really scratching, but was doing mixing how hip hop would do mixing. In the early days of DJing, there was no such thing as mixing records together on beat. You know, that's a hip hop phenomenon. And so prior to hip hop, DJs used to literally play a, a record. And then as the record was fading out, they would fade in another record. It never was on beat though. So hip hop was the first and only time that music was played on beat and continuous play, you know, where people never had to stop dancing per se. That's such an amazing thing to hear as a DJ, because to me, that's normal now. You know what I mean? It's normal to just have the music continuing to play. But back in the day when DJing first started in the hip hop sense, this was like mind blowing to hear a DJ play music continuously, to have the beat flowing that comes back to like the cool Herx, the Grandmaster Flash, the African Bambadas, you know, extending the break. Then that's where you get break dancers. So the reason I love this story hearing what Speech had to say is because we're getting to the essence of hip hop and like hip hop culture versus just, oh, we're just going to make a song. It seems like Speech was just so ingrained in the culture at the time that it was just inevitable that he was gonna start making rap music and producing and because it just seems like he had this this the desire to just make music and just be a part of the hip hop culture. Yeah, and this is like a turning point because this is like technically where hip hop begins, where that like those loops are put together and you get that continuous mix that we know inherently right now is is hip hop and this is like where the mix is. How did you even think about like I'm, I want to become a rapper? I want to rap. I want to do this. Like, what 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 did that start from? I was in grade school, and um, basically, I had um, well. Long story short, I didn't do very well in school, and so in sixth grade, I had to repeat sixth grade. I flunked, and I had to repeat sixth grade. So. Um, I ended up going to sixth grade at a school that's no longer there called St. Agnes. It was on um, basically right off of Capitol Drive and like maybe 15th Street, maybe 16th Street, somewhere in there. And um, maybe 25th. I forget which street it was, but off of Capitol Drive. And um, I met a brother named T.A. Wiz. His real name was Todd Whitaker. Basically me and Todd heard Rapper's Delight and this was back in 78, 79, somewhere in there and um, Rapper's Delight was out and we were blown away. We was like, oh my gosh, you know, listen to Master G, listen to Big Bank Hank, listen to, you know, and we just felt like this was the most revolutionary music we had ever heard and we just wanted to be like them and we wanted to, we wanted to rhyme and then what really turned me out was seeing breakdancing and seeing more than even that DJs. Like when I first saw Grand Mixer DST on the Grammys with Herbie Hancock, I had heard scratching before on record because it was on Herbie Hancock's song called Rocket. It was literally like um, a revolution in my mind. It blew my mind to see somebody grabbing a turntable and scratching with the needle, you know, 
I never had seen anything like it. So that's what really got me interested in the DJ part of it. In the rhyming part, it was Rapper's Delight and seeing me and my boy T.A. seeing people rhyming on a record for like 12 minutes straight just blew our minds. It literally was nothing that we had ever heard before. This is a counterpoint to Marvel Love. Yes, yes, it is. I who, saw, who saw that at a conference. <laughs> right, right. And his mind was blown because he saw the future in this, and he saw that he could make money off of it. So for me, I understand how the Majestics could make a rap song in their way. They, you know, make a disco rap song. They're a funk band. They just make a funk band, record it, blah, 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 get in the studio, record everything they, they play, rap over it, and cool. But to then now make a new kind of genre of music, this new style of hip-hop in 1984, 85, uh, how? Yeah. <laughs> how do you do that? The first record was um, very much an experiment. So we went to a studio called Tracks 32, which was – outside of Milwaukee, but like I would say 20, 30 minutes outside of Milwaukee. We we rented a, a professional studio because we thought that's what we had to do. And we used a lot of their equipment on the first attack on the wax. And, you know, we sort of tried our best to go ahead and create that joint while we was in the studio. And then as time would pass, you know, we realized that, okay, we could do this in a local studio. We don't need to have that many tracks because one of the things that I think people wouldn't realize is that we never traveled to New York. We didn't know anybody that ever written or did a rap record. So for us, it was a lot of guessing. And as unlike today, there was no internet. You couldn't go to YouTube and check out how somebody did something or, you know, how they say there's YouTube University where you could learn anything. You couldn't learn anything online. There was no way to get that information unless you was to travel there and just sit with somebody and watch them. We didn't know exactly what to do. All we knew is what it sounded like on record, what famous groups like Run DMC sounded like, how can we make ours sound like that? And we were trying to do the best we could to make a, a, an authentic hip-hop record. And so by the time we did the second one, we got it because we had finally been in the studio and we was like, okay, now we get it. Like, let's really take this to the next level. And I feel like the second record, which it seems by what you said, a lot of people agree, that it was a lot more, it was just a hotter record, you know, and, and we really knew what we was doing and we was ready to, we was ready to kill it. Excuse me, PT. May I? May you what? Yo, may I get on the mic? T.A. Why, of course. All right, let me ask you, when was the last time you performed an Attack record? Like, or even listened to Attack on the Wax <laughs> <part two laughs> That's funny. Like that. uh, I haven't performed an Attack record since, since 80s, like late 80s. But I've listened to those records probably about three or four years ago. I was showing them to my kids. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what did they say about it? They laughed, 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 you know, because to them it's so cheesy. It's so corny. Like they don't get the they don't get the relevance of that particular time. And I, I always tell them, you know, that whatever they're digging right now, whether it's, you know, I don't know, whoever they're digging right now, it'll be cheesy to people in the future as well.
Speech may think his music is kind of cheesy now, or his kids may think his music was cheesy, you know, now. But back then, it was anything. But it was influential. People loved it. People were performing it. People remember it so much. So got to give him credit where credit is due. And back then, you know, he was making a name for himself. And that name back then was Peachy. He goes from Todd. Todd Thomas. Every, Todd Thomas. <laughs> this is very much Todd Thomas. So not many people, a rapper name. Right. So many people said Todd Thomas. Not Todd. Not Mr. <laughs> Thomas. But Todd Thomas is was his name. And so he has to go. He has to make his DJ name. So how does he get his DJ name? There was a dude named Rockman Jr. He was literally my idol. He was a DJ. He's talking about Pierre Hall. We heard from him That's earlier correct. in the podcast. He was That's the correct. DJ on WNOV in the 80s. Pierre Hall literally was my hero. He was... He dressed fly. He had women that loved him. He was a fly DJ. He didn't know how to scratch a mix. That wasn't his thing, but he was a DJ. And anyway, his name, his nickname was Rocky. And so the reason I named myself Peachy was imitating him. Like uh, I was light skinned and girls used to say I look like a peach, like my skin complexion was like a peach. And so I said Peachy. I was like, his name is Rocky. I want to call myself Peachy. And so that was me imitating him. So Peachy is building his brand here, you know? Yeah. He, he has become Peachy. <laughs> he has released Attack, you know? Right. He has become the fly dude that he's always wanted to be. Right, right, right. But, I mean, it wasn't all great. I mean, when you're the manager, when you're the one in charge, you're trying to book some shows sometimes, some crazy things happen, and he tells this one story about that exact thing happening in Detroit. We went to Detroit uh, to try to do some shows, and, you know, it was a lot of things that we got ripped off with because we didn't know what we was doing so one time we promoted a show in detroit and i brought my entire fresh uh, fresh walking family with me we went to detroit and we one of our tactics was to try to hire other more popular groups and we open up for them in other cities so we went to detroit um my dad who had money from being an entrepreneur he hired fresh prince and jazzy jeff and back in those days, they had one single out, but it was hot as ever. It was Girls of the World Ain't Nothing But Trouble, I believe. And um, it was super hot. And so we wanted to open up for them. So we literally hired them to perform. And we had ourselves and my crew open up. It turned out that we got ripped off because we paid them like, I don't know, probably $1,000 back in those days. And it wasn't even, uh, <laughs> we didn't know what they looked like because back in those days, the singles didn't have pictures on them. So we thought it was Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince. It turned out to be two imposters. They didn't look nothing like them. And so we paid them some money. They got us, you know what I'm saying? It was, it was funny, man. I ain't going to lie. It was funny. Like, in retrospect, man, when we first saw, you, you should have seen the look on my face when we first saw the real Fresh Prince and Jazzy Jeff. And we looked back on, we looked back. <laughs> We look back on that pic, I mean, on that date and said, man, that dude was fat. Fresh Prince was a dark, fat, fat dude, all greasy and stuff. I'm like, this ain't Fresh Prince. That wasn't even the real group. So, you know, it's things that you, you know, it's like any artist can tell you these types of stories in the sense of, you know, you go through a lot before you make it. Like any artist that's made it or had some type of uh, success will tell you that it. It, or at least most of the time, it doesn't come easily, man. It comes with a lot of trial and error and a lot of learning, you know. Man, can you believe that happened to him? If only we had the internet back then, one for him so he would have known 
what Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince look like, but also we could have just watched it. We could just be nice to go back and see his face when he watched these imposters show up. But that didn't stop him. You know, Speech was determined. Speech was ready to go. He had aspirations way beyond Milwaukee. I always wanted that, you know, like I didn't want to be just a quote unquote Milwaukee artist. You know what I mean? Like I knew that Milwaukee had to rise to the occasion of New York because New York was defining hip hop. Even back then, it wasn't even L.A. defining it as much. It was New York that led the way and in L.A. And, you know, I wanted Milwaukee to have that same legitimate sound. And I feel like we accomplished it with that EP. It really does seem like they did. Everybody, you know, looks back at that EP, Attack on the Wax, those four songs, and love it. But not just the songs, again, just the connections he made and the impact he made on the Milwaukee hip-hop scene that, you know, sounds like he, he says he started. He did the thing. He, he did. <laughs> he, you know, he set out to accomplish it, and he accomplished it. They, you know, they released the EP, and it was great. Everyone loved it. Everyone still loves it. You know, but then... Well, this was a difficult time to be in the city of Milwaukee. A lot of people lost their jobs. You know, gun violence was on the rise. He even knew a few people, his own friends, that lost their lives to gun violence. And so, like, when those things happen, you question or not, you know, and he questioned whether he wanted to stay in the city or not. At that point, guns wasn't too bad of a issue. Like, it was mainly, you know, people might beat you up, you know what I'm saying, with their hands or bats or things of that nature so even that wasn't it wasn't a lot of deaths and things of that nature going on in the beginning days um that would end up getting worse and worse and at this point speech reaches that critical point yeah he decides to move the real reason i left milwaukee because i literally thought i could get killed there and what's unfortunate is my one of my rap partners did get killed and I felt like Milwaukee was getting more dangerous for black people. I felt like the racism was real. So there was a lot of things that was going on, and I felt like I needed to leave. As soon as I got to Atlanta, um, which was very different. I mean, it was harder in the hip-hop world, but it was very cultural, and black people were doing a lot in Atlanta. Still are, but it was very progressive. And it's, you know, as a Milwaukee man that's been here my whole life, Dude, you know, no. you, it's just like, dang, you know, but you did the thing and then you leave. <laughs> but it, but we understand, you know what I mean? And it, it led to him going to Atlanta and creating Arrested Development. And uh, with a change of scenery comes a change of character. Atlanta is literally known as like the peach state. So it, like the peach is a really big deal in Atlanta. So. It was a little harder in Atlanta, and I didn't want to be known as MC Peach coming here. So I was like, yo, I got to change my name. And so I just dropped the Pete. I mean, I dropped the, um, I just put an S in front of it, basically, and said, instead of speechy, I just said speech. And that was it, because I was like, well, now I'm not going to DJ as much. I'm going to rhyme. And since I'm rhyming, I think this putting the S in front of Peach would be really fly. So I just said, I'm going to call myself speech from now on. And that's how the name change happened. Arrested Development was really soon after. So as soon as I left Milwaukee, I felt like, man, I could I could do more things here. And I got to Atlanta, went to a school called the Art Institute of Atlanta, and immediately put up a flyer. Like, literally the first week at school, I put up a flyer saying, looking for a DJ, wanting to start a group. And this guy named Timothy Barnwell came up, and he was looking at the flyer, and I saw him looking at it, and I started talking to him. And he would later, I would name him later Headliner because he was a great barber. And um, me and Headliner started 
looking for other group members. And so, you know, that's where the beginning of Arrested Development started. You have to think about back around this time, you had the Native Tongues movement with a tribe called Quest and De La Soul. So, so much hip hop centered around Afro, you know, Afrocentricity, positivity, community. They were part, they weren't officially Native Tongues members or anything like that, but they were just part of that and just kept caught on that wave and it just added to that vibe. Yeah. Low End Theory was 1991 and... Three years, five months, and two days in the life of by Arrested Development was 1992. Exactly. These are like things that are happening in the atmosphere at the same time together. All of that happened. Arrested Development, amazing hip hop group, done so many things. But it just started with Speech, Peachy, Todd Thomas, whatever you want to call him, just being in his dad's club spinning records when he was 13. So that's the one another thing about this story I love is this hip hop is such a story about young people being creative, being inspirational and just taking their future in their own hands and creating something. I mean, we don't even 13 in the club, just getting into the club. Yeah. (laughs) But then being the one playing the records and then being involved in the community, being everywhere around. You know, he was a DJ. Then he started to be an MC. Then he's producing his own music. Then he's managing groups. So he's doing every single thing hip-hop back in the early 80s. And then in the 90s, he starts Arrested Development. And along with like Native Tongues, like this is what we refer to as the golden era of hip-hop. Yes, it is. Yes, That's it what is. we look... This is the boom bap. You yeah. know, this is like what we look at as being like the pinnacle of right. hip-hop culture. Right. And it was like... It was... Uh, Tribe Called Quest, it was De La Soul, it was Arrested Development. In the golden era of hip-hop, Arrested Development is gilded. Now I see the importance of history While my people be in the mess that they be Many journeys to freedom made in vain By brothers on the corner playing ghetto games Alright, so that's the story of Speech. Speech saw hip-hop, loved it, fell yes. in love with hip-hop. Everything. Got people together. Got in the studio, is excited to make hip hop, claims it. We were the first guys to do it. In contrast to the Majestics, right. which we heard in previous episodes, who say that they did technically make the first song, but right. they want nothing to do with hip hop at all. Can we remind you that they said, <laughs> yeah. what we do with soul food, that's that fast food. You know what I mean? And so it's crazy. We weren't expecting to get to this point, we weren't expecting that the group who claimed to make the first one would just not care about hip-hop at all. So we have the Majestics. We made the first hip-hop song. We did it. We were the first ones. We don't care about hip-hop culture. That ain't our thing. Don't call us that. And then on the other side, you have Speech. Yeah, I wasn't the first guy to technically make a rap song out of Milwaukee, but I started the hip-hop culture. I started the scene. I started what we call as hip-hop. So when you look back at hip-hop, I did that. And I love it. It matters to me. I'm still doing it. I haven't stopped doing hip hop since 1985. I haven't, or really when he was 13, DJing in his dad's club, that was still hip hop too. And he made it to the top, you know, like he, top of the mountain, Arrested Development, worldwide fame, Grammy winning, worldwide acclaim, you know, the, our hip hop classics. Yeah. And he is the one that started it in Milwaukee. And I I got to just, yeah. Was it zero zero one? <laughs> was it was it the first? But let me ask you this: But from what everybody talking about him, with everybody's opinion about him, how he was influenced, do we have to change the course? And does zero zero one matter, or is it that does the culture matter? And I think that's what we have to try to figure out. 
That's what we got to get into. Hey, this is Backspin executive producer Nate Imig. We thank you for listening, and we've got some thank yous to do ourselves. Backspin, the search for Milwaukee's first hip-hop song, is hosted by Tyrone Miller and Justin Barney, produced by Jordan Lee and Kenny Perez, with segment producing by Salam Fatayer. Evan Retleski does our web content. Sarah McClanahan is 88.9's marketing director, with social media managed by Amelinda Burrich. Digital distribution by Tariq Moody. Aaron Bagata is our marketing coordinator. Community outreach by Peter Adams and Maddie Reardon. Project management support by Laura Kesman. And animation from Lucas Seidel. Also want to thank our interns, Zoe Knox, Anthony Massans, and Jonathan Hudson. Of course, a big thanks to our partners, RevPop, The License Lab, Hip Hop Week MKE, and Kid Millions. He dug up all that amazing vinyl that you hear in the podcast. Also, thanks to our media partners on Milwaukee, Breaking and Entering, and the Milwaukee Times. You can stream all six episodes of Backspin, the search for Milwaukee's first hip-hop song, on all major podcast platforms, and of course at RadioMilwaukee.org slash Backspin. Backspin, the search for Milwaukee's first hip-hop song, is an original podcast production of 88.9 Radio Milwaukee.